This morning's uh, scripture passage uh, in our continuing study of the book of James comes from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Uh, Hopefully you'll be able to see it on the screen behind me, uh, or you can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1,289. Uh, James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows, and in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the pastor, and so it's my job to explain the text that uh, Brian just read to us uh, from James 1. We're in the uh, beginning stages of a study we're doing this fall on this very short, small letter. He is the younger brother, half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he is a leader in the church, and he's explaining Uh, to uh, Jews who are believers that are scattered in the Roman Empire, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. At the very end, the last uh, year of World War II, it became a a tremendous heart-wrenching experience for any of the soldiers who liberated these concentration camps at the end of the war. The very first concentration camp to be liberated was near the city of Adorf, Germany. It really was a village. In fact, its name just means water village. And it was Patton's army who uh, found the concentration camp and liberated it. But one of the things that happened as the uh, allies were sweeping Europe is that uh, the Nazis wanted to begin to hide Uh, their atrocities and they did not want to leave witnesses and so they began to exterminate which is a uh, somewhat nice way of saying murdered um, everybody in the camps and because they didn't have time to dispose of the bodies which is what they had done previously they just stacked them like cords of wood and when the Americans came into this particular concentration camp there were 5,000 bodies stacked like cords of wood that had begun to decompose. When uh, Patton, who was the leader of this particular uh, group, uh, arrived at the concentration camp, he had a slogan that people who uh, loved and revered Patton, they called him old blood and guts. He exposed all of his guts. He just threw up when he saw 
the cords of humanity. But one of the things he did is he asked his army to go get every civilian out of Adorf to come to the concentration camp to show them what was going on in this camp because they kept saying, we didn't know. And then he, he commanded them to uh, rebury or to bury for the first time 5,000 uh, uh, Jews in proper burial. And they did all the same, including the mayor and his wife and family, even children were required to participate in the burial of this atrocity. That night, the first night, the mayor of Adorf and his wife committed suicide and they left a note. It just simply read, we didn't know, but we knew. James is trying to get us to understand we know. And there's no excuse, but we didn't know. We know. Yesterday, actually for Friday and Saturday, we hosted here at EP 700 women of part of a conference called One. We want to thank Cheryl Mullis who leads our women's ministry for and all the volunteers to make that happen. But I was intrigued by the title, One. They were uh, trying to explain how Christians are one in Christ. From John 17, the high priestly prayer, uh, Jesus is leaving uh, the planet and he says, I ask the Father that you make them one as we are one. It presupposes that we're not one. You don't tell people they have to have unity unless there's disunity. Is that not right? I, I think it's also right that when James says twice, do not be deceived, he's presupposing we are deceived. In fact, his indictment or his charge is that we're, we're self-deceived. It, it, it's not even that someone has come in and said some things that really has uh, rocked our world and we've gone off the deep end following that teaching. It's simply that we have the ability, the capacity the infinite capacity to deceive ourselves. And so James encourages us back to one of the great uh, conjunctions of this passage is be not just merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In order to kind of get our minds around that, uh, verse 22, as it uh, exhorts us not to be mere hearers, but also uh, uh, doers. I spent uh, uh, this week in two sets of meetings. The second meeting is the one I want to talk to you about. It's a, it was a dinner that uh, I put on uh, for two sides in our denomination. Uh, two groups of people that uh, don't get along. It's kind of hard to believe. Uh, but I love... I, I love Scott Soule's quote from the book, Befriend. It's a very short book. If you want to read it, it's, it's a really uh, quick read. But he's got this one quote in there that I wrote, and, and I think I gave it to you in your worship guide. And it's, uh, the beautiful gospel is this. We are completely loved moral failures. 
You know, it's, it's two things and there's no conjunction in there, but there is a presupposed one completely loved and moral failures. And if we separate them, and that is we emphasize one over the other, or we worse, ignore one of the two, we end up with an imbalanced gospel. That is, and maybe you've been to some churches like that where they completely emphasize the moral failure side. And so every Sunday is a rehearsal of just how bad you are. And, and maybe in the last couple of minutes of the service, somebody will say something good and encouraging about you or to you. And, and maybe you've been to churches. I have been to churches like that. When you walk out, you, you, you scream, hit me again. I want one more. That's just kind of how Christianity is presented as a suffering saint. You're not supposed to feel good about your Christianity. And so the job of the pastor is to make you feel worse every Sunday. Now that's pejorative, I understand. But maybe you've been in churches that have been the opposite. That is, there is a neglect and ignoring of the moral failure side and it's a complete focus on you being completely loved. The God looks at you and sees you as incredibly beautiful because of the righteousness of Christ that has been assigned to you and your identity being in Christ. Maybe you've been in churches like that. So you, you walk out feeling wonderful. I, I felt bad coming in here, but today I feel better because he finally told me, I heard for the first time how loved I am. I remember when I first became a Christian, I became a Christian as an adult and I, I didn't really understand the gospel until I was pr- pretty much in seminary. And you say, how's that possible? Well, you can hear, but not hear. That's why sometimes I'll pray, Lord, help us hear But what we hear, help us understand. And what we understand, help us to believe. And then the last one, I say, help what we believe, we obey. But you can see that sometimes that we can hear something our whole lives. But it never, the penny has never dropped, never gone all the way down, never really affected who we are and what we, how we live. And so in one way, we're mere hearers of the word. Well, I was that way and I can remember uh, hearing the gospel for the first time to my heart, not just to my head, was in seminary when a professor began to explain the gospel in systematics. Now, please understand, my wife took my systematics course for me. (laughs) She did, she took both of them. I just took the exams. I read our notes. Um, but as I was interacting over that, that's when the gospel was coming alive to, to me. And, it, and I began to listen when I first became a pastor in a, in a large church as an assistant, listening to Tim Keller sermons and hearing for the first time how the gospel, who I am, my union with Christ, m- me in Christ, changes everything. And so it just... In a lot of ways, it was like finding out for the first time who you really are. 
you get really excited to the point where you drown out all the other message that Christianity teaches about orphans and widows, about, uh, about uh, uh, obedience. All that gets drowned out, not intentionally so. It just happens because you get so excited about one part of the reality of the gospel. And so there are two groups of people in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which our church is a member of, that are debating those two things. You know, that they're so excited about the gospel and the pejorative word that they, or concept that they give people who do that are the grace boys. They don't mean that as a compliment. And you say, well, I'd wear that one. I'm a grace boy. What they mean by it is you don't talk about obedience. You don't talk about the implications of faith. You don't talk about the other half of what James says, the other half of the conjunction, which is don't be mere hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Well, the other group that I asked to come and participate in this dinner Pejoratively, they get called moralist, mortificationist. If you don't know what that means, go around killing your sin. Those are just all pejorative. And, and what I discovered in this meeting is just how little we understood each other. How little we really knew what the other person was saying. And so the, the objective of the dinner was just to begin to ask questions and have people answer for themselves as opposed to straw men. But I, t- I tell you this because at the one conference that was just, you have juxtaposed unity that presupposes we need to be taught about unity because we're, we're not one. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? If we were all one, if our church was all one, if our churches PCA were all one. If all the churches in our town were one, you wouldn't need teaching on unity. You, you ever heard that before? You, you get uh, two Christians together and you got three opinions. <laughs> it just is natural to us to be disunified. That's the, that completely love moral failure, moral failure side. You get us together and we'll find something to disagree about. My mentor used to say this, you could get You can get a Pentecostal and a Presbyterian in the room and they'll have more in common than if you put two Presbyterians together. (laughs) What he he means by this, and he he usually says, the closer you are theological, the darker and broader your lines of separation seem to be. So I, I commend the conference. What a great opportunity to talk about We already are one in Christ. Our experience has not caught up with reality. That is, we don't experience our unity the way that the scriptures talk that we speak, that we are already one. Well, that's also true about hearing and doing. That is, he would not have to talk about this, James, the younger brother of Jesus, unless this was a struggle that we had, that, that we have two camps in the church, that, that some are so excited that Jesus Christ came and lived the life they should have lived and died the death that they should have died. His righteousness by faith is theirs. 
that when the father sees you, he sees his son perfect. That you are as glorious and beautiful and accepted, loved as you will ever be. But at the same time, our experience has not yet caught up. Because we live very differently than who we are in Christ. And so the other half is the call to alignment, to bring our lives into line with what we profess, we believe. And so James is trying to take these two big ideas that are, that are divisions in the church and say, no, 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 no. It, it's not that you should emphasize one and ignore the other, but they're two that to be held in tandem together, two in tension together, because that is the Christian life. I can't wait to get to heaven when I no longer have to two, hold two seemingly opposite things together anymore. I'm so tired of holding things that seem to already and not be yet together. I'm so tired of, of being in Christ and not living in Christ. I get so tired of talking to beautiful people about their lives and their lives so out, out of line with the gospel. One day that tension is no longer going to be there because these two perfect ideas of hearers of the word and doers of the word, people who, who are unified in Christ, who actually experience that unity is going to happen without any tension. That's coming to us. I just can't wait. And here James is encouraging us, listen, I understand these two realities. Some of you are focusing upon hearing the truth because this is so brand new. You think it was new for me to hear the gospel back in 1980 or, or when I went to seminary in 1990. You think that's unique? Imagine hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time in human history. That's who James is writing to. It's not like they have a whole lot of information of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He's telling them for the very first time. They're so excited that the Messiah came and did what he said he would do. They're so excited about it. No wonder they're hearers. But the concern that James has here is not with just the hearers, because I think that's our natural inclination. I think it's the reason why when Paul showed up in Athens, they said, hey, give him the platform. We want to hear what he's got to say. I think by nature, we're hearers. What doesn't come naturally to us is to be doers. That is to take what we're hearing and living in light of what we hear. I think that's harder. I don't think that comes natural to us. I think that's something that we have to work at by faith. Here's the great other half of the gospel. If part of the gospel is you in Christ, that is your identity, who you are has been determined. It is already settled law. The other half is Christ is in you. And that means there's a power in you to all these things he's asking us to do can be done. Because Christ is in us. 
Don't make too light of that. We, we at EP, if you're new to EP, we make much of us in Christ because our identity is in Christ. So much of this world says you're nothing. You're just part of the primordial slime that you will one day return to. And therefore, humans are insignificant. It's one of the reasons our culture is trying to give so many rights to animals and dust mites and things like that. It, it's, it's because humans are no different in that scale. And here the gospel says, you're created in the image of God and therefore you have dignity above any other created being. You reflect the glory, the weight, the matter of God on earth. But I think what doesn't come natural to us is to begin to live in light of that. I think that's where I struggle and I think that's where we all struggle, whether it's in your marriage and friendship relationships or even on a denominational level. And so James says, listen, let me tell you what the greatest challenge of you ever doing the word, doing the gospel It's your own self-deception. It's the lies that you tell yourself to, so that you don't have to do. I love how 21, verse 21 will come out and say, be doers of the word and not hearers of the word, deceiving yourselves. Hear what he's, what he's calling us is that you guys, like in verse 22, Trying to find, I'm trying to do two things at one time. I didn't like the sermon that I gave at eight o'clock, so I rewrote it sitting over there. <laughs> so I'm trying to take what I wrote over on this side in the, in the message over there. I know this never happens to you. And it doesn't happen to me very often, but it did. I felt so bad for eight o'clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now I know where I am. Um, in uh, 22, it says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. It's one of the most memorable lines from James. The other memorable line that everybody says often is, um, uh, uh, faith without works is dead. That's another memorable line from James. The other one that people often quote is this one about hearers and doers. And he's, he's juxtaposing that, that that tends to be where we all are. And we self-deceive. And the, one of the ways we self-deceive is we excuse. That is, we know, he says, take care of widows and orphans. We know that he says that you need to uh, care for the stranger, which is the, in, he, in, in Greek is the word for immigrant. Ironic, isn't it? Our culture is having this, and I, not just an American culture, it's happening in Germany and France, all over the world. What do you, what do, you do with the immigrant? Our culture, every, every time we bring in people f- that aren't, indoctrinated or enculturated in our culture, it changes our culture. And so we, we struggle with that. But the scriptures say, take care of the immigrant. We know that it, it, it commands us to. Why? Because you are aliens and strangers in this place. And so when we, 
when we say it's not safe, let's, let's keep the immigrant out. What we're saying is, well, that's, that's, that's the, the heavenly kingdom value that safety is more important than immigration. When in reality, the scriptures teach, no, 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 no. Was it safe for, for me, the heavenly father to bring you into my kingdom? Remember, you're the moral failure. Or, or pick widows and orphans, and, and our church has plenty of widows. Maybe not as many orphans, but do you know in our county right now, right in Anne Arundel County, there are over 160 kids right now who have no parents. And they're living in either foster care or in group settings just simply because there are no homes. And some will say, well, you know, they're, they, they've, they've been so terribly damaged I can't bring them into my home. And maybe that's true. You can't. But if we don't provide something, we're going to be held accountable for that. Because we're orphans that have been adopted into the family of God. You just go on and on with the commands. I just pulled the two that were in here. But the scriptures are replete with commands about the oppressed. What are you doing about the people who are oppressed in your own community? How are you taking care of them? How are you insisting that they are, are, are treated fairly? Whether it's in housing or in education or in job opportunities and training. It goes on and on. You say, that's social work. That's, what, that's what, why we pay for social workers. All I'm saying is James is saying to us, their excuses for not being doers of the word. Their self-deception is what his concern is, is that we've so self-deceived ourselves that we think we're obeying because we've created enough excuses so that we don't. So what's his solution? Well, he gives three parts to his solution in verses uh, 21, uh, 23, 24, and 25. The first one that he draws our attention to is this idea of removing those things that take life of the gospel out of your heart. And that means you've got to be aware. You've got to be aware of these patterns of sin in your life. I've got to be aware of these patterns. And, and part of the challenge about seeing patterns is we're blind to them. And so we have to have other people involved in helping us see these patterns because, quite frankly, we can't see them very well. But they still need to be pulled. You know, he's using the metaphor of garden. That's why he talks about the idea of, of planting it is because in their world, they would have been very, very, very familiar with, with gardening and planting and farming. And so he's using this, this kind of a metaphor so that they can understand what he's talking about is that the greatest danger to your garden are the weeds that grow up alongside and can choke out that which is true and beautiful and lovely. And you need to be aware of that. And, and, and James is telling us that that's our patterns of sin. That if they go unidentified, they grow and take over the entire garden of the heart. 
you know, James didn't just come up with this. He, he had heard Jesus, his older brother, talk about this when he told the parable of the four different soils that the word of God uh, is planted in. You know, some of it's hard path and because uh, of a spiritual darkness of the time, birds come and, and take it away. He talks about the rocky soil and I, I'm just going through, you can look up that parable yourself. But in all three cases, something uh, takes away the seed of truth, the, the things that we had heard. And, there, and, and we know it has no effect because it doesn't bear fruit. The only one that bears fruit is that fourth soil, the good soil. And it's there that it has a hundred or more a times in fruit. And what's the difference? They all heard. Some of them understood you know, the, it came in and began to take soil, but because it was on rocky, it could only go so deep. So when the cares of the world came by, uh, it, it just died. And some people hear the word. Some people understand the, the word of God. And some people even believe. And it's what we love about EP is that this is a place where you can come and hear the truth claims of Christianity you can come here and uh, seek understanding of those things, ask your questions, share your doubts and concerns about Christianity, uh, particularly about what I was trying to say about this dichotomy. We're one, but we don't act one. We, we're in Christ, but we act like we're not. Those are all these, if I'm on the outside looking at the church and I'm thinking, oh, why do you keep talking about these things? Because nobody's changing. I love that about EP. It's a place where, where dirty people come in and see dirt. Can you imagine? You're the dirtiest guy in town and you come to EP and everybody's clean. It's a double whammy. Not only do you find out you're dirty, but you find out everybody else is clean. What I love about EP is, is that everybody's dirty. We have no perfect Christians. We just have the other kind, the imperfect kind. That, my friend, is a great testimony that we recognize that we're hearers, but not all doers. And even if we were doers, we're not all good at doing. I think that's a, a great testimony to the grace of God that one day we're longing for the day when we'll be perfect doers and not just hearers. So what's the difference between the four soils? Did you know scripture says that Satan hears and understands and believes? So the only thing that makes us different than the devils is that our lives are changed by it. That is that we don't just hear, we don't just understand, we don't just believe, but we're changed. And that's why I think the other half of the gospel, I was reading a great book this summer on union with Christ by uh, Rankin uh, Wilburn. And, and in it, he, he says, we tend to focus on, upon one half of the gospel, our identity with Christ. We're, we're, we're in Christ. And, and I'm just telling you, that's me. I'm so excited about my identity in Christ. I forget the other part that Christ is in me. And therefore I'm empowered to do what he says, not because it changes my identity, but because of my identity. That's the difference. That's why the fourth soil bears fruit, not just 10, but a hundredfold. 
So the very first thing that James tells us is you need to remove those things that choke out the gospel out of your heart. Verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That idea of put away is simply a clothing industry concept of to shed something or to take it off. It's looking at the rampant wickedness, this idea of rank growth, growth in our lives that is not good, that stinks. I was uh, putting some sod down in my backyard yesterday and uh, I had some guys help, but the lower you got on the pallet, the wetter the soil was. And the wetter the soil, the more it stank. And we're like that. That is, in us, even though we are in Christ, and even though Christ is in us, we still stink. We stink in the sense of we've still got these patterns. I've got these patterns in my life of being defensive or, or trying to get you to, to see it my way. I mean, I, I thought that would be the hope of this meeting that these guys would finally see it my way. Because then we could have unity. And then I found out I was as lost as a goose in there because I didn't understand the other side. I didn't understand what their concerns were, what they thought that we were teaching that was so wrong and why they they looked at the church and they saw ill health. What they did is they, they exposed this rank wickedness, this smell that just wasn't right because it was out of balance. It, it was out of the, that we weren't trying to hold two things in tension together. They would admit they weren't either. And therefore you and I need to uh, weed our gardens. And, and as I said before, you can't, you can't weed your garden by yourself because you can't see all the weeds. You have to invite somebody in and say, hey, help me. And a true friend does. But the second thing he says is that you need to receive the implanted gospel with meekness. Do you see that in 21? Receive with meekness the implanted word. So we don't just remove, we receive. Verse 21, receive with meekness. And the way he defines meekness, you have to almost go all the way back to the very beginning of our text where he talks about listening and speaking and anger. And he says, okay, one of the marks of meekness is you walk into the room assuming you may not have it all right. I don't do that very often. I assume I'm right. It makes things go so smoothly. It really doesn't. But in order to walk with meekness, you have to go and what? Quick to listen. Because if you're quick to speak, you'll never find out what the other side thinks. But you also need to be slow to speak and slow to anger. There's a time for righteous indignation. But for most of us, it's indignation. It's just not righteous. The third, and this is the last, not only do we remove those things that choke the life of the gospel out of our hearts, but we receive the implanted gospel with meekness. But we need to remember something. Just pop into 23. If I can get ahead of myself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he is like. At, for, at the first service, the reader uh, inserted a word that's not there, but it, it comes natural to insert this word because we think that's what it means. 
That is, our interpretation sometimes affects how we read. He said it this way. He says, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. That's what we expect it to say. That in a mirror, you see what you look like. And then when you walk away, you forget what you, you looked like. That's not what he's saying. That's, that's the natural tendency to read into scripture based on an interpretation of what we expect it to say. He's not saying that he looked in the mirror and then he forgot himself. What he forgot is who he is. He forgot his identity, his union with Christ. That's why in verse 25, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and, the, and perseveres being a no hearer, forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Can, can I just talk just briefly about the law? One use of the law, when I say the law, there are uh, 617 laws that are recorded in the scriptures. We tend to think of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which is great because it's divided between our relationship with God and our relationship with one another in community. It's an easy way to remember it. And when they get to Jesus, Jesus said, let me summarize it for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And every time he reduces it, he makes it harder. You ever notice that? Every time the, the law gets reduced from 617 to 10 and from 10 to 2, and then sometimes he'll just say, love God. <laughs> Every time he reduces, it just gets harder and harder on us. But one of the things that the law does is it acts like a mirror to us. That's what James is trying to say. When you look at the law, it shows you imperfection. You ever notice that about a mirror? I hate that about mirrors. Instead of showing what I would like to look like, it shows what I do look like. And the parts that I forget are all the imperfections of my skin, all the imperfections of my looks. Well, that's what a mirror does. And that's what the law is supposed to do. So that when you read, thou shall have no other gods before me. He's showing that we do have other gods. You don't tell people have no other gods before you unless they've got other gods. He says, don't make any graven image. Well, it's because we have conformed God to our image rather than us conform to his image that he has to tell us to make no images. Have no idols, make no idol. Well, it wouldn't be a problem if we weren't idol factories. You just go on and on. He doesn't need to tell us not to st steal unless we're thieves. And I love what the Westminster Confession of Faith does with that uh, commandment. It spends very little time of stealing what we tend to talk about stealing material things, but stealing reputations, stealing the good name of people. It's a very different application. And so one of the things that the law does for us is it shows us our imperfections where we don't measure up. That's why some people have translated the word, the Greek word for sin to mean missing the mark because there's this standard, there's this perfection out there that God has that we're all required to have. And so one of the things that the law does for us is it shows us all the places that we don't measure up. But he has a weird turn of phrase here, doesn't he? He says it's the perfect law of liberty. He doesn't just call it a law. That's what I would have done. But he calls it the perfect law of liberty. Now, we tend to think of liberty as what? I get to do what I want, when I want, how I want, to whom I want. 
And reality, liberty is to be and act in line with who you are. That's true. Freedom is to actually do what I was designed to do. You know, that's we're in the chariots of fire where he's, he says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. The, the, the point being is that when I actually do what I've been designed to do, there's not only pleasure for God, but there's pleasure for me because that's what I was designed to do. Well, that's what the law does too. The law shows us not only our imperfections, but what it looks like to truly be free. To be and to do what we are designed to do, to to love our parents, to honor our parents, even the bad ones. It may not look the same, but we're still called to honor them. Coveting, you know, my neighbor has gotten ahead. I don't like that. It shows us pictures of what that means. You and I, the gospel says that we are healed and that we are being made whole. That that's the essence of what the gospel says that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. But what does that look like? We have to return to the law to see. And so when James says, don't be mere hearers of the word, we know that. We've heard that. We've heard the Decalogue. We've heard the 617 laws. We've heard Paul say, based on the mercies of God now, present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices to God. We heard the law. But James says, have you heard the law, the perfect law of liberty? That means you can now obey it, not because it makes you perfect. See, that's the moralist. And that's wrong. But it would also be wrong for the grace boys to say, that just happens by chance. That just happens because you sit in the room, like uh, going uh, to Carlson's and becoming a donut. It just doesn't happen that way. (laughs) Somebody finally got it in the back. Here's, the, here's the, the catcher at the end. Where are we? Where are we corporately on that? Here's people trying to seek to understand uh, uh, believers and obeyers. Where are we on that? If that's a continuum and we're supposed to be progressing uh, through that, where, where are we? Where are we communally together? That is, are we helping each other get to the, the, the doing of the word? Because that's what reflects that, the, that what we heard has made a difference in our lives. It is a demonstration. How are we individually? Because that really determines how we're doing communally. Where are you? Where am I? If you're anything like me, I might have one or two areas that I have worked all the way through but I've got dozens and dozens that I have gotten nowhere. Now, since you're perfect or close to it, you're probably further along than I am. But that's what the church is here for, is to help each other become hearers and understanders and believers and doers. And so we're going to do that together. And James... James is saying, guys, please understand, that's the goal. 
Because if we're just going to emphasize one or the other, we're not helping anyone, including ourselves, because he calls that self-deception. And the way self-deception works, and this is why it's so insidious, you actually think you're making progress when you're really not. So let's pray to that end. Father, obviously, we have blown it here many, many times. We have communicated to visitors who have come in the room and to ourselves that we have it all together. That we have moved all the way from hearers to uh, understanders to believers to obeyers. And in reality, we've either skipped some of those steps or altogether left them out, ignored them, neglected them. And you have your word here to show us that we're not to neglect them, ignore them. That in fact, we have to have them in order for us to bring into line our lives with who we now are in Christ. And the mirror of the perfect law of liberty is in front of our face. And I pray for anybody in the room that that's a painful experience, which it really is for all of us at different times. May someone come along. May you put someone in their lives to be either the encourager or the confronter. Lovingly confronting so that we can see. Loving encourager so that we can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.